Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford, and this time we're coming to you from the Michael Ellis School for Dog Trainers, and I get to spend some time uh, getting to bring back Michael Ellis to the podcast and continue our conversations that we had in the other episode that came out uh, a couple months ago, which ended up being one of the most popular episodes we've had in quite some time. So Michael, thanks for coming back to the show. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for coming up this week. Yes. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I can't say it enough and I thank you for the opportunity to be out here and it was super fun because, you know, we had trained in collaboration but not in person together because of one of the the contracts we got to go work on um and i had heard you know uh the feedback that was were very similar and you know i I knew that but i would you know it was good to hear it from from people who were students and um and then obviously being out here together we got to see it you know uh you know, you got to see it from your point of view. I got to see it from my point of view. So it was a lot of fun. So thank you for for having me oh, to do that. Absolutely, my pleasure. You guys were great to have around, and it was a, a beautiful synergy. So lots yeah, of stuff dovetailed really nicely. So it was yeah, lovely. absolutely. No, it's it's cool to see with that. Like we were just saying too, it, it's very rare when you get trainers that have that synergy together and the things uh, just flow and you can operate with it kind of without thinking when you're around each other. So that's a, a unique part of what, you know, we got to have by being around each other. So I guess enough of the love you stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're great. Yeah. You're, you're <laughs> um, so, uh, but I wanted to share, you know, we'll start off in this episode with, um, kind of that topic uh there's there's a lot of people that follow you and do the the different sport programs and the type of obedience and connection with their dogs and communication and things like that um and they might be interested in doing some of the uh detection now so from your point of view what do you what would you recommend or how do you talk about like you got to see firsthand the connection between what you do and how it dovetails over to detection in the way that we teach it and talk about it. Sure. Absolutely. Um, I'm personally always looking for opportunities to kind of talk about core dog training principles across a variety of disciplines. And for whatever reason, dog trainers have a tendency when they get within a specific discipline uh, to kind of shut themselves off a little bit to mm -hmm. ideas coming from other disciplines and detection work like many aspects of the protection sport world and things like that uh, have a lot of traditions around them, mm -hmm. kind of embedded ideas. Um, and people can get pretty rigid about that. Yeah. And I would love dog trainers of every discipline to be speaking kind of a common language mm -hmm. and thinking about larger principles and how what we do in obedience is like what good detection dog training could be and how can i come up with a universal kind of language to communicate to my mm -hmm. dog across a variety of disciplines right yeah and so seeing you here you're there's a variety of things that we've talked about right obviously our ideas about motivation mm -hmm. uh like interactive rewards versus possession-based play mm -hmm. which is kind of the tradition of detection <laughs> yep. work things like the use of conditioned reinforcers and conditioned punishers um discussions of reinforcement schedules um, generalization work that yep. we are talking about constantly um a lot of those things are 
we're, we're speaking the same language ultimately, yeah. which is a great thing. Right. And I would love to see more of that trickle throughout the communities. Mm-hmm. Right. So that mm-hmm. we're all, when somebody says, uses a term or has an idea that we're, we're all communicating. Yeah. And so this was, a, it felt like a really good opportunity for that. Right. Um, I hang around the fringes of detection work for sure. many, many years now. And so when you're working with law enforcement and yeah. military and things like that, you get to sort of, I try to keep kind of, up with what's happening in the mm-hmm. world and it is one of those worlds that i think uh, is like protection was 10 to 15 years 15 years ago maybe 20 years ago um it's kind of ripe for a revolution yeah some of the kind of dog it, it doesn't like there's this idea in dog training sometimes that the that stuff that's older and has been around is you know passe it's not, mm-hmm. not useful anymore and so we have to be vigilant not to kind of throw out yep the traditions that work and are functional and you have them in your toolbox, but they get so rigid that people don't want to think about it differently. Yeah. And so I think what you guys are doing right now is to sort of updating the world of detection and scent work um, to kind of jive with some of the stuff that's happening in the world of obedience and mm-hmm. competitive sport training and the whole rest of that world. And, and I think they mesh perfectly. Ultimately, yeah. Right. No, it, it definitely is. a Again, you know, I obviously through videos and the things that I've seen, I knew there was a connection, but it wasn't until we were next to each other and the thoughts were going back and forth and that really tied in. And my side of it was seeing how uh, your students engaged with the play and the reward events and then the building of some of the tasks like the stillness and using the hand mm-hmm. you know closed hand versus open hand and how that communicated and it matched very much like you know when you want your dog to stay in a position it stays until released and it, you, there's the ways you go about teaching it it matched exactly how we want dogs at odor to mm-hmm. do this until exactly. yeah yeah it was fantastic and i think that it always goes back to fundamentals mm-hmm. and it's easy um when you get into a discipline and you get past the beginner stage that people begin to forget a little bit about mm-hmm. the fundamentals, yep. they begin to think, well, I have this problem with my dog on a search or in competitive obedience as I get close to a trial and people start troubleshooting, but they troubleshoot in the context of the larger picture mm-hmm. instead of returning to fundamentals. And so I felt that was a, a, a really your instinct always and you and Natalie both doing a really good job of thinking about coming back to fundamentals. If yes. you have a problem here, don't work on it in, mm-hmm. in the context of the search, separate it out. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's something that good uh, obedience trainers have done yeah. for years and good protect sport people have done this idea that take a problem out of its context and work on the fundamental piece of it. And how many of your regular reps go back to fundamentals, Correct. right? Yeah, yeah. Somebody's, been working on the scent box and they think, oh, I'm past that. Mm-hmm. Right. I yep. don't, you don't go back there. Like yeah. my dogs, that's a beginner. That's basic. Why would I go yeah. back to something like that? But we do the same thing all the time. I think, you know, in protection sports, three quarters, half to three quarters of my repetitions are back to fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not working full routines all the time. I'm, mm-hmm. You have to do that yep. for sure. You have to generalize, you have to work in the environment you're going to work on. But also mm-hmm. there's the skill building piece where you make sure all your fundamentals are solid. And you don't pollute something else by working on those by lumping. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, or that was really or trying to fix it in the spot. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, and I'll know a lot of detection dog handlers when there's an issue that comes up, they want to fix it right there, but that's not the best place to do it. And like you were saying, you know, by going back to your fundamental stages, you can isolate those, that issue and work on something specific. So if your dog is say is distracted by a certain odor, uh, you can then go back to your, you know, we refer to it as step two where there's discrimination mm-hmm. and they have to say, okay, here, here's the thing that you're really distracted by, but here's the thing that rewards you. If you focus on this, you get reinforcement. And if you don't, you get nothing, mm-hmm. you know, so it's a much easier way to address the problem than trying to fix it midstream when you're while you're training when numerous other variables are present which may distract the dog from your goal anyway absolutely so now the other thing i know that you had found interesting and i think that the listeners would uh get to hear your point of view the difference in how uh the typical detection was always simultaneous conditioning versus mm. delayed conditioning i'll let you just kind of speak from that and what you got to see because i think it was one of the times you hadn't seen how we, you know we you never saw us do it but mm-hmm. you got to see how we talk about it and and you obviously understand it and how that works in detection from your point of view yeah i think absolutely so i i, I think it boils down to uh, an overall discussion of generalization, right? This idea that what picture is the dog operating off of? Mm-hmm. And um, in dog training, we all, in every aspect, we always have to be vigilant for, I think the dog's operating off the signal, a command, uh, a physical picture, whatever that is. And there are other pieces that have been pulled in mm-hmm. and scent work is full of those. Yeah. Maybe as much as anything out there, right? Because mm-hmm. the dogs are picking up all kinds of things with their nose that we don't even necessarily know are there at a certain point. And so this idea of simultaneous conditioning, pairing, whatever you want to call yeah. it, that's always been uh, a sticking point for a lot of people. How, I mean, it, it's not that it's dysfunctional to do mm-hmm. that and pairing odor with the primary reward, uh, it, it, doing that, but how do you get rid of the help part mm-hmm. of that? And as you do that, it's harder for a dog that's looking for a cocktail of odors or searching too long for their toy or their primary reward. And so the idea of not having, not building in help yeah. that you don't later need to eliminate. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you had to do that with a dog and there will be some dogs that will, right. You're yeah. going to struggle a little bit and you're like, Oh, a little bit of simultaneous conditioning, sure. a little bit of pairing yeah. is not a big issue. Correct. But if I can approach it with the idea that I want not to do that, then I've just removed a piece of help mm-hmm. from the picture mm-hmm. that I don't have to worry about fading later. Yes. And that, and there's plenty of other stuff for me to worry about. So if I can <laughs> take true. one off my plate, yeah. it's a great idea. And yeah. the way you guys approached it was, was excellent. You get the dogs searching like everyone does as mm-hmm. a, quickly. And then you want to get them on odor as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Odor predicting reward. Yes. As opposed to odor and reward in combination and then gradually pull that out yeah. and hope that the dog recognizes the mm-hmm. odor produces reward instead of continues to look for reward right yeah and so i think uh the way you guys are approaching it elegant simple mm-hmm. works great. Yeah. like we saw it with a bunch of dogs here this week right a lot of our students dogs have been spending the first two-thirds of the semester working on obedience principles mm-hmm. right and, and so these dogs have lots of handler engagement and they look to handler for direction and all kinds of things like that but we watched a group of dogs that are Unlike a lot of beginning detection sure. dogs who have been taught to be independent from the beginning, very quickly start to figure this out, mm-hmm. right? And going on to odor very, very quickly. Yeah. And odor predicting reward instead of having now 
I got to pair them for X amount of sessions yeah. and now I got to start to think about getting rid of them. It worked, it worked beautifully. Right. Yeah. So, no, it was cool it to sense. see. Yeah. And, and, and the kind of point you brought up too was the fact that you guys did a lot of uh, engagement with handler uh, through the training. And this was engagement with odor. And despite some of that, context, you know, conflict, you know, the dog going, well, how is this played? I'm used to looking at you and now it's pay attention to this box with odor in it. But it was so cool to see it within a day and a half, two days of the max, the dogs are like, okay, I got this concept and I'm seeking out. We saw the dogs dragging back to the box to try to go back to odor. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and a lot of handlers that, uh, we, and that's done without pairing. There's no reward, you know, that started that whole tr- process. It was the odor that drove that chain of communication. Like odor led to the reward and, and then in some cases led to the engagement with the handler. And that connection was really strong. And that's, you know, just a slight twist to what we've done for so many years with a pairing. And we're at the end of the day, just talking about a literally a two second delay, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, with the steeped tradition of, you know, most dog training, uh, in this case, detection, it's hard for some to go, I'm willing to change. And I'm always like, it's a two second change is all we're really doing at the end of the day. But that two seconds is profound because just like you said, it's odor that leads to reward, not reward leading to odor, or obviously pairing it with odor and then phasing that out and adding all the extra work into it and everything else. So the clarity of the concept for the dog is odor is the most important thing. Thus, you know, the silly term odor pays, mm-hmm. but that's, you know, how it is. And it's, so it's cool to, to it see. captures the essence of what's happening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Actually, it captures the essence, <laughs> yeah. You know, marketing, you have yeah. to kind of do it these days in order to be around as long as people get the idea right so that's the whole deal yeah are you are we able to get through good principles Mm -hmm. right and one of the reasons that it went smoothly was it's a well thought out approach and it's simple Mm -hmm. but also if you have handlers that are used to focusing on timing verbal communication, yes. use of markers, yeah. all that kind of stuff, which our students get steeped in, yeah. then you can see how quickly you can communicate to the dog, mm-hmm. right? Where in traditional systems, we were relying on our ability to physically get the reward there as quickly as possible, mm-hmm. throwing it and all the stuff to try to get reward at source. Well, the incorporation of our use of conditioned reinforcers that's allowed us to really refine that. And yeah. you could see a group of students that have been practicing the use of that on other behaviors, yep. on obedience behaviors, mm-hmm. shaping hand touches mm-hmm. and retrieves and other things like that. But those skill sets carry right over. Yep. And that goes very quickly. Yeah. Right? Like, cause they've ironed out the idea of observation, timing, yes. communication. And, and so that can go, yep. r- that's another aspect of a, a huge world that, mm-hmm. that det- and it's happening now, Yeah, but it, was very slow going yes. to get people to kind of realize the value of condition reinforcers and punishers in, mm-hmm. in certain worlds. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so the, another thing that's, uh, you know, I know very important to both of us, but comes as a core staple of the training that you do is rewarding how to engage with your dog with reward versus just being a reward delivery device. Um, speak about the importance of the rewarding event and then how you would bring it into detection, you know, in the way that you do it. And so that way the, the listeners can understand that, that importance. We just don't want to be the person that just throws a ball. So. Yeah. I think everything in our like dog training is a cooperative effort, even though detection work, is an independent job, right? We have the same kinds of things in protection work, right? I need a dog that will work independently of me, that will go away from me to search, that will go fight with a bad guy and endure stress, 
without my assistance. And then it also has to listen to me and do that thing. So we are constantly talking about this kind of balance between dependence and independence and all of that. And in the detection world, because of the emphasis on, on independence mm -hmm. and dogs not taking too many cues from their handlers and things, there's always been uh, um, a reluctance, let's say, to have the handler be the kind of primary source of, mm -hmm. of a reward system, right? Yep. Like make it about the object, like make the dog crazy for their Kong and mm -hmm. choke them off their Kong and mm -hmm. make it all about that kind of thing. And what I would call possession based play was rampant, right? The issue with, of course, all of that, and those dogs are motivated. Yeah. Certainly they can be trained. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But you introduce large elements of conflict because the dog now gets the reward and they want to keep it. They yeah. want to give it back to you. It's not cooperative. You're an adversary, right? Yeah. You're the person that's going to come grab me and try to pull the thing out of my mouth and snatch it away from me so that I can search again. And so you introduce an element of conflict and aversiveness mm -hmm. right into, I want to pay you, I pay you, and then we have a fight. Yeah. Right? As I try to get you back and get the thing away from you. And so the same kind of thing that we do in developing rewards for obedience and might work is we call it cooperative play. And that mm -hmm. that's done both with food yep. dynamic, what we call dynamic food play where our dogs chasing food and jumping for food and we're throwing it and the handlers running and making activity and play. And we focus on building these reward systems ahead of their application. Yeah. So what we do here with the students is we have them practice these games with their dogs in isolation, basically create mm -hmm. a little interactive reward between the handler and dog, yep. whether it's done with food or toy. The dogs learn that the handler's fun to bring the toy back to, to let go of it's just a part of the game, mm -hmm. you're going to get it back. Um, same with the food stuff, you're the source of that. And then when we go to reinforce the dogs, we have a reward that's built already, mm -hmm. right? You're not trying to create the reward yeah. in the act of training. But on top of that, it's really easy to get the dog back to you restart yeah. for searching again you've eliminated that conflict and of course you have to be balanced in like is the dog the dog knows the rewards coming from you so you have to watch your timing and your criteria and all the rest of that stuff to make sure you're not inadvertently reinforcing too much handler focus but that's the same thing we have to balance in every discipline mm -hmm. right and the, the fact that you have kind of a higher value reward connected to that that is free of conflict hopefully if we've yeah. done our work right is huge yeah right? we it makes the whole process smooth more smooth we can move quickly through things um and we don't run the risk with sensitive dogs and things like that of you know shutting them down yeah over the 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 aversive right where the dogs can stop going mm. i want to leave the search area yeah because i want to keep my toy and keep my fight with yeah. you yeah exactly so um i i think that it's the I like it's it gets complicated right? sure so like anything that we all want to kind of come up with a a, a a simple idea yeah that we think applies to every dog and there would be a dog out there so this is the the caveat yes all this. Of like course. i think generally speaking cooperative play and handler-based reward systems are incredibly valuable mm -hmm. and useful but we do have to watch out for the dog that maybe is already a little too handler oriented yes and so then maybe we swing the play towards a little bit more possession for that dog or you know we let that dog be a little more independent and maybe we throw the rewards more instead of make it with me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are ways to work around that for a specific dog correct and that's a conversation that i think you and i had a lot and yeah. i would love to have it come up more it's not like this way is bad this way is good correct it's like what's the best thing for the most dogs and be vigilant to make the adjustments. So if I see a dog that's really, really not wanting to leave the handler because everything's 
connected to you, then yep. yeah, we, sure. we start fostering some independence. We back off on that. But overall, I think it's a net plus yeah. in detection and that world's been sort of slow to adopt yeah. it, especially the, the the real world detection stuff. Yes. The nose work world's getting there a little bit more. Yeah. No. Different kind of dog sometimes. For sure. And so many, you know, we've both seen it. So many of the professional detection dog handlers have struggled with that, how to use the toy and not have their dogs blow up because of possession. You know, they're like, I got to keep that toy. Then they got to try to out the dog. And then there's not even really an out built in. And then they finally get the toy after choking the dog out for X amount of seconds and then try to do the game again. And then this other piece, which is get the dog super stimulated to go run over to this box and then all of a sudden be super calm. And there's so much conflict going on. Where's the learning at when they're that high in that, stress or anxiety for learning it, it, it's so difficult versus let's just calm it down let's we i want to cooperate with you i want to play with you we're going to have a game but you're also going to do this for me and we engage again and the dogs become so much more willing to do it mm-hmm. and they're not over threshold and they yeah. can truly understand the task and you know for the listeners that are in the professional world you know i can tell you and so many can tell you if you cooperate and teach with a dog and get that interactive aspect with a dog who wants to engage with you, your detection goes through the roof because now it's not a conflict for the dog. The dog's not looking at it like, I'll go find this thing, but I'm not going to, as soon as you give me that reward, we're going to have a fight over this kind of oh, yeah. thing. So. And you touched touch on something that's giant there, that the arousal thing, mm-hmm. right? So traditionally and in, in professional detection, the dogs were made absolutely berserk for a toy mm-hmm. got the dog way up here they're yep. hunting for their toy they're doing that stuff and then we introduce the concept of detection so of course the dog's really amped to go search for sure they get in there and then you want a very different behavior when mm-hmm. the dog gets to source you mm-hmm. want them to be able to what we would call cap yep contain themselves mm-hmm. not paw not bite not smash into like all the kind of stuff that happens there and that traditionally building the dog way up is kind of what I would call an old school idea. Mm-hmm. Like you're going to need all this drive and the dog's going to have to tolerate all kinds of aversive stuff happening to it. So you need them up there before they get through it. But we've known for years in the mm-hmm. obedience world that that's not the perfect teaching level of arousal. Correct. Yeah, I want my dog to eventually be able to work at that level of arousal. If I have a really good dog, I want that dog to be able to get super stimulated mm-hmm. and search and then go from very stimulated to locking up, up and yeah. holding their position. But in the obedience world, what do we do? We bre- reduce the arousal level while we teach the behavior. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to teach you to down, I don't make you berserk, leaving the air, missing your toy <laughs> yeah, yeah. out of your mind and then say, okay, here, now I'll teach you how to lay down. Yeah. We reduce the arousal level. We show them slowly how to lay down. And then as they get it, we crank it up, mm-hmm. still do it, crank it up a little more containment crank it up a little more containment mm-hmm. and there's this idea of teaching the dog what to do with that arousal yeah that comes slowly but you wouldn't want all of that at the teaching phase mm-hmm. but which has been sort of the tradition yes in set work right yeah and of course you need a minimum level of motivation mm-hmm. so there's that's the other thing it's there's a sweet spot one dog needs you to crank them Correct. up for sure otherwise yep. they're not invested enough to go do their job right another is like whoa whoa we could operate a quarter of this mm-hmm. and get the concept and then yep. once you understand the concept it's much easier to turn up the volume and have the dog still perform the behavior right yeah no and, and the other aspect of all that is when they're that cranked up they're not efficient at detection that you know running around at high speed 
in a in a space, whatever it is, let's say for a vehicle or a room or what have you, running around at almost top speed, the dog's nose isn't as efficient as it would be working at a normal pace. Absolutely. So again, the other part being counterproductive to this whole process was we get them so spun up, then then they're not even, you know, working efficiently. Mm-hmm. You know, I need the dog to process all of the available odors that are in this space. And there's going to be a lot of odors depending on where you're at. Plenty of distractors. I need it to process and process it efficiently and go, oh, here's what I'm looking for. Or weave through the, let's say, the maze of odors in a space and go, there's the one I'm looking for and follow it through and get to source so but you can't do that efficiently if you're at top speed so my joke always is speed kills not only with (laughs) driving but also with detection absolutely yeah so in that same realm uh we have both been uh, advocates for the use of food and toy Mm -hmm. and in the detection world there was always this misunderstanding that if you had to use food the dog wasn't good enough or motivated enough and foods for dogs that are too weak um expand about you know what you see in the use of food and the use of toy and how it really maximizes what you can do in detection sure uh so i think it it it's, it's tied to the last thing we just talked about, right? Um, the right amount of motivation and connection to get the dog to understand the task uh, and controlling that arousal. And so for a lot of dogs, food, for the type of working type dogs that we like, toy is a much higher value reward. So it's inherently going to mm-hmm. crank up arousal level. So with I work with food, it has a couple of advantages in the teaching phase. Bring the arousal level down so the dog mm-hmm. can think a little bit while it understands a job. It also allows me to repeat a task more quickly and do multiple reinforcements in a short period of time, mm-hmm. which is a little harder with a toy. Yeah. Uh, the dog doesn't get tired as fast. So I can get a few more reps in the teaching phase there as well because the dogs start to pant and breathe mm-hmm. heavily and things when you're playing with them a lot. Yeah. Um, and, and that makes the early searching stuff harder. And so I think a synergy between those, it's the same idea we're talking about. I can use food and there are dogs that will could be on food for life and they're sure. absolutely yep. fantastic mm-hmm. detection dogs. Um, but for a lot of dogs, the food is maybe a, a temporary thing. Well, you mm-hmm. get the behaviors established and you switch over to a toy and increase the arousal level after the dog understands their job and you don't need the same number of reps anymore. Mm-hmm. But like teaching the dog their indications and things like that. It's yeah. really nice if you can do five or six or seven in a row really mm-hmm. quickly, yep. just like we would at any other behavior, right? If I'm teaching sits, I don't do one sit and that's it. <laughs> yeah. I'll do five or six in a row, sure. right? You cluster, we call it, right? Where you, you can move the learning along mm-hmm. in the beginning stages and then we mix that up. And so food allows that. And there are dogs that will segue back and forth even. Yep. So you could use food in one context and a toy in another context, right? Mm-hmm. And dogs mm-hmm. can understand that. You know, they can understand, oh, hey, uh, we do it all the time in obedience. Yeah. I reinforce this exercise with food because it keeps the arousal lower. Yeah. I reinforce this other exercise, my recall, mm-hmm. with toys because I want my dog to be cranked up for their recall or whatever mm-hmm. it's going to be, right? And we can manipulate that. So that that's another potential use of it in detection. So I think the, the idea, too, people are like, oh, if you use food, then the dogs are going to look for food in the detection. Like, oh, like, yeah. all, all the kind of nonsense that yeah. we have about proofing off of any of that yeah. stuff, yeah. right? Right. And so, uh, yeah, it's incredibly valuable. It's incredibly valuable. And you, of course, again, have to adapt to the dog. Mm -hmm. There's going to be certain dogs that people want to use food 
but the dogs aren't invested enough and yep. we can manipulate food motivation up to a point. Yep. But there's going to be a dog whose buy-in isn't completely there. They're yeah. going through the motions. We talked a lot this week about what I would consider empty repetitions. Yes. Right. The repetitions in which the dog is not completely invested, right? They're doing it. They're eating the food, whatever, but they're looking around and they're like, okay, great. Thanks. Whatever. Yep. Right. But that's not that making meaningful connections. So we need a minimum level of arousal and motivation. Mm -hmm. So the dog buys in. Yep. So each of these early reps make an impression. Right? Mm -hmm. And so for one dog, food's not going to be functional. You're sure. going to have to do the whole thing with a toy. Yeah. Right. And, but for another dog, it's great. Yep. Right? And most of the dogs, we can manipulate it enough so that we can get the benefits in the early stages, even if we know we're going to transition to a toy later. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The empty repetitions is a, uh, important thing I think detection dog handlers don't hear enough and because a lot of times training is set up to put out numerous hides and by hide let's say three or four or even whatever you know to even past, past two for some dogs the dog is barely giving you what you it's just doing it you know or it's using you to solve the problem after the second one because it's already checked out it's it's not, yeah <laughs> so we have to also embrace that idea in detection that what are you really getting with those empty repetitions? What are you really getting with multiple fights? Now, I'll again make that caveat. We know sport world, they have to do lots of them. That's it's required. But as you develop that dog in sport, you have to understand that you don't want to go through too many empty repetitions because that goes against what your goal is later on to go find a lot of them. If yep. you have four or five hides and, or maybe six, depending on what level you're in. Um, so you have to maximize that. And the best way is to get the most out of start the quality over quantity, as we were saying. hundred percent. Absolutely. Like I, in the, especially, and this is a, especially important in the teaching phase, of course, right? Mm -hmm. When the dogs are learning the concepts, it's like you have a well-seasoned dog and yeah, you can work them too long, but they're still going to, you're not going to wreck yeah. them at that point. Yeah. They're going to be ready to go mm -hmm. next time. You're not causing great damage. But when you're teaching a couple of really invested reps is worth 40 half-assed reps where the yes. dogs are kind of like, yeah, all right, whatever. Mm -hmm. right? And I'm constantly talking to people in obedience about the same thing. Like, your dog's not into this. They're not, I mean, they're doing it, but they're absolutely going through the motions. Like you're, you know, having a conversation with somebody and your mind's drifted off somewhere yep. else and you're kind of halfway paying attention. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing. Yep. Those are not meaningful. Mm -mm. They don't get solid buy-in from the dog. You don't learn that much from them. And, and so you're wasting motivation, training time, all that kind of stuff without really moving the needle. So we always need to be vigilant. Yeah, that, right? of course. No. And this segues right into, uh, I'll let you expand a little bit about variable reward type and variable reward schedule, mm -hmm. because I think a lot of times these get confused, but how to utilize this again in, from the concepts in obedience over into detection. Absolutely. I think this is going to be the next big area of discussion here, right? Mm -hmm. And it's one that people in the search community have been very slow to adopt and I understand why, and we'll talk about it a little bit here. Sure. But the idea, variable reinforcement type is when people are using different reward types, of course, right? So a dog can use food in one time and back to a toy, and you're varying the type of reward you're using and mixing that up on dogs, right? And some people do that for novelty's sake, and there are some dogs that are less motivated, typically dogs that are motivated by novelty. If you change your reward type, they get a little bit excited about the new reward. And if they're getting the same kind of reward, they can flatten out a bit. Most of the better, more motivated working dogs 
Like the more you give them their favorite reward, the more addicted they get to it. And you don't have to worry so much about novelty controlling it. So when we switch reward types, we're mostly switching reward types to control arousal, right? I want the higher value reward or the medium reward or the lower value reward. Reward schedules means for any given behavior, how often am I reinforcing it, right? And so typically if I'm teaching a new behavior, I'm on continuous reinforcement. I'm reinforcing every rep. And then we move on to a variable or random schedule in which the dog doesn't know which reps are going to be reinforced, right? And this is incredibly important piece of the puzzle when we're training dogs to perform repetitions repeatedly without reward, right? So we do this in obedience all the time. My dog and I enter a competition or when my dog's finished, they can't be reinforced for every repetition they do. Uh, it's not functional and like the dog has to go do long routines without rewards at all at a certain point. How do I build the dog to do that? And variable reinforcement makes that happen. Like once the dog, you get the kind of gambling mentality where the dog says like, well, if this one didn't get reinforced, the next one's going to get reinforced. Right. And so that is not explored nearly enough in the world of scent work. Right. And there's all kinds of studies that, that behaviors actually get more intense when you switch onto a, a variable schedule. Um, different schedules do different things to behavior. And so you, that's, we can manipulate that, but pretty much people are saying it's like, okay, if you don't reward your dog on odor, like your dog's going to quit searching, right? Which is crazy. Like we have, I might reward my dog for every sit, yet my dog doesn't quit sitting. Why? Right? So why would that be the case there too? And I think there's a huge possibility for beginning to explore that. Having, telling the dog they're right, but not necessarily giving a primary reward. And that will actually increase performance. Right? Yeah. And then also those dogs will be way more tolerant of blank search areas and things like that, right? They're not expecting every single time I'm going to go in here, I'm getting a reward, right? We talked about it yeah. there as well. And they're willing to continue to work. And if an area is clear, it's clear. Great. Next time it won't be. And bam, the reward's coming and you keep the dogs invested. Uh, and so talking about ways in which we can communicate that to the dogs so they don't think they're wrong. I think part of it is people haven't used the full um, breadth of the communication system properly, right? Yeah. So well, if the dog's wrong, we do a lot of staying out of it. And that's important to some degree in scent work. Yeah. Like if the dog's waiting for me to tell them when they're right and wrong, you can get a lot of lying. Right? Yes. And so that idea that we need to be independent. But then we're waiting dogs out sometimes when they're not correct, right? Instead of having a way of just telling them, come on, let's go. Yeah. Keep searching, right? So I think there's a lot to be explored here. And people, um, I'm sure there's people out there that have messed with it a little bit, but mm -hmm. it hasn't seeped into the whole culture yet. But I think that's the next one of the next big things, like the idea that we're using markers and communicating mm -hmm. there and you don't always have to pay at source Correct. the whole thing. Um, and then on top of that, the potential for variable reinforcement coming into this world is, is in my mind huge. Yeah. And, and in terms of improving performance and mm -hmm. all of that kind of thing. So no, you, you, and you hit a couple of big things there. So the, that mentality for a dog of always getting paid every single time versus not getting paid every single time and knowing that it's, it's going to come at some point creates the dog to work harder. And there's been such that misunderstanding of if you didn't pay, they wouldn't get, or they would, they would start to see extinction behaviors. Well, of course, if you did it frequently, that would happen. You overdo but, it, sure. Yeah. But, and it's funny it, <laughs> in the professional world, it's frequently this way where they pay every time in training, but then in reality, they never pay. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to use v, the variable reward schedule in training, but yet 
they do the complete opposite on real world and you have a significant number a number of issues that come from that oh yeah the dogs are going to figure that out so fast that would be it's the it's the competition person mm-hmm. doing the same thing like if i rewarded every repetition in my obedience or my protection work or things like that as i'm preparing for a competition yeah. and then i went to a competition and of course didn't reward my dog cuz i can't in the yeah. competition I don't have to do that very many times. And my dog knows the context, (laughs) you know, this is the reward context on competition day. There's no rewards happening. Your street dog's going to know when you get out there, I don't get rewarded out here. This Mm -hmm. isn't happening. Right. And so those worlds have to merge. Right. And I should have unrewarded repetitions in training and I should have rewarded repetitions in Um, actuality. Yep. And how much and when would be dog dependent and Mm -hmm. performance dependent and all those things, but you can figure that out. And, performances all the way around would improve, right? Yeah. The big drop off from training to real world is there in every discipline. Yeah. And that's when people's training looks radically different than the, hmm. the job the dog's going to have to perform when they get on the street or wherever they are. And so that, that need, needs to be addressed for sure. A hundred percent. It's, it's one of the things I try to share that gambler mindset mm-hmm. as I call it with, cause of course being in Vegas, it was an easy tie in <laughs> on that one. You guys saw yeah. those people sit there at the slot machines <laughs> and diapers. Yes, exactly. Right. I joke around call heaven's waiting room, <laughs> but, uh, the, and then the other thing that you brought up, which I thought was super important. And you saw us talk about this was the all clear search, the search with nothing there and how to still reinforce that, even though the dog didn't find something and do this trained behavior, Mm -hmm. there is still a correct behavior happening and this needs reinforcement. Yeah, 100%. So I think it would be like anything that the idea I would come in and clear this room, the dog, there's nothing in here. The dog tells me there's nothing in there through their behavior. At the end, I say, good job, nice work, Mm -hmm. let's go. And I take the dog out. I would probably avoid giving super huge high value rewards yep, there yep. so the dog could learn to, mm-hmm. to lie to you there. So if, if I throw their ball for five yes. minutes at the end of those <laughs> things, your dog's like, cool, I can just skip the thing and run around the room <laughs> twice and say, nothing here, play yeah, ball with me. Yeah. But you still have to be able to tell them in some fashion that they did the right thing in yeah. some lower value reward or handler interaction. Mm-hmm. Don't just take the dog and stick them in a crate. Yep. Right. Right afterwards. Mm-hmm. That's can be seen as a punishment. Like mm-hmm. good job. You did your job, right? There's nothing here. And mm-hmm. that's what the dogs are going to face in the real world more mm-hmm. often than not. Yes. Right. And so that's a huge problem, right? In training, super reward rich environment, you always find something. Yep. And then in the real world, most of them are blank. Yeah. Right. And so now, oops, Mm-hmm. How do I bring it, merge those things? So the idea that I can communicate to the dog there mm-hmm. is, I think, essential. Right? Yeah. And each dog's going to be a little different. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. As you watch, you're like, mm, this dog's starting to get a little lackluster in their searching. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'm doing too many blanks and maybe I'm giving them too much feedback or too big a reward at the end of that. Mm-hmm. And then you digest, yep. right? People are so afraid to blow it up that they don't kind of push with each dog to find out where yeah. the balance is for that dog. And it's going to be different from dog to dog. And if I go a little too far, it's not the end of the world. I can rein it back in and yep. readjust it mm-hmm. and, and you'll figure that, that out as you go along. But I think it's invaluable. Yeah. The other thing that becomes, it's more, I say it's controversial on both sides, <laughs> as I say, between sport and, and professional, the use of a condition reinforcer, AKA marker, AKA bridge, um, Talk a little bit about, so there's addressing the fear that I hear frequently in the detection dog world, which is how do they know what they're marking for? Obviously, 
we as you know when we set things up with you know as me and you've seen we set it up so we know exactly what we're marketing for especially that beginning stage but there's that argument that floats around that you don't know what you're marking for so stay away from markers and the second part of that is if you mess up a marker more than twice or three times your dog's ruined so i'll let you expand upon those things so uh, how do you know what you're rewarding when you're using <laughs> markers or not right so yeah. if you want to ask the question like this is, so in a traditional system just because you're not using markers are you reinforcing the dog of course you are how do you know what you're reinforcing mm-hmm Exact same thing. Same thing. Like, so that's a crazy argument to me in that sense. The markers allow us to reward in different places, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yes, there's some truth that I have to be vigilant. If I release my dog away from source every time to reinforce them and I don't watch my criteria, the dog can get less dedicated to source, right? And it may become harder to read as I go along. But I would have to watch for that anyway, right? At, at any point. And so I just balance it out. And we're not even, we haven't even begun to explore the, the, the potential of this, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I could have three or four different markers that tell the dogs say. different things. Mm-hmm. This marker means reward's going to be at source. This marker means the reward's with me. This marker means a food reward. This yeah. marker is going to mean a high value toy reward, right? Um, I can have a marker that says, stay there, keep going, persist, yep. persist, persist. And I can get you to hold an indication for longer periods of time, just like we do in obedience, right? Yep. Um, focused healing. Like I need to teach that dog to sustain the behavior. So sometimes he gets rewarded after one step. Sometimes it's 20 steps in. Like I have a continuation signal that I can use for the dog. All that could be there. And it's just the idea that the handler has to stay out of search work. And I can have an independent search dog and still communicate to them, right? And we were talking about it this week. If I have markers and that dog really understands my conditioned reinforcers and I've trained that dog well, I should be able to sit in a chair yep. outside the door, send my dog in, peek in. If there's <laughs> and, something there. And, there's, and the dog's a little mm-hmm. locked up over there. <laughs> I could say, yes, the dog comes running back to me for their reward. Yep. And that's a completely functional, possible thing, yeah. right? But it's like, it's like anything. You have to pay attention to your criteria. Like just because we're using a different tool for communication does not mean that you can take your eye off of the details of it. It's all about timing, observation, criteria setting. And if you're not, how many people that are, that are not using markers, like they have a tell, they wind up when they're going to give a reward. Their dog knows it. They hear your feet stop. They hear you shuffle. They hear your, you reach for your pouch. They know that stuff. And so the dog's eyes are rolling away from odor as you Mm -hmm. throw the reward. Walking behind the dog in order to reward. There's so many other markers Mm -hmm. (laughs) that you're potentially giving. Mm -hmm. It's just attentiveness to good dog training. Exactly. And, And in a sense, it makes it easier because I don't have to be right there all the time. Correct. So if you're talking about options. In, independent searching, which is ultimately our goal, yep. right? It, then where a dog really doesn't need you to do their job, uh-huh. right? I want to be, we have a partnership, but I would love for you to be able to do this job without mm-hmm. me so that I yep. can help when I need to and not help when I don't need to, yeah. right? Then markers would just make that easier. I don't have to be in the same position all the time to do you have timely reinforcement. Yep. I can give it from across the room, yep. right? You can hand a clicker to somebody else and they can do it. Yep. Like, so I can be marching over there looking in the corner and somebody else can reinforce it. There's so many potentials yeah. there. Right? Instead of all the trickery that we do, <laughs> the, we go into this detection training many times with 
things that we are trying to trick the dog to do, you know, believe, oh, I, believe, I don't have the toy on me, right. you know, or, you know, neither do they in the room because now we've done, we've had to have third party, you know, pay, payments, you know, people throwing the toy for you instead of just being clear, Hey, I have what you're looking, I have what you want. Yeah. Go do this. You do the, this sequence of, you know, go hunt, find odor, tell me you found it, whatever position that is. And then I'm going to give you your signal. And I can come up to you, deliver it right there. I can bring you back. The more options we have as handlers, there's so much more we can do. Yeah. But we paint ourselves in this corner because we do trickery. 100%. And And do you really think you're tricking your dog into thinking you don't have a toy? Yeah. Right? Uh, The dog that can detect, you know, like one part per trillion of whatever it is in the environment. They don't know you have the Kong in your pocket or they don't like, come on. Yeah. (laughs) My, believe me, my canine sleight of hand is on point. You know, he has no idea I have it. Oh gosh. You know, and, and and all that trickery does is just draw more attention back to you. Of course. Which is the other major part of a problem is the dogs utilizing you because there's that line I give in my cognition classes, which is there is no other species on the planet that has the ability to read human communication and attention better than a dog. So you're not fooling it, yep. you know, no matter what you do. Yeah, they're fully bought in to trying to figure us out. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that actually brings me to this because that was a, uh, another thing that you got to see for the first time was cognition. Speak about what you got to see from that and what you think about it and, yeah. and the use of it, not in just detection, but other things. I think what I thought was fascinating, I've done a little bit of reading ahead of this and, you know, hearing what people are talking about and cognition labs at universities and things now are a big thing. Finally, dogs yeah. are a legitimate subject of research, mm-hmm. which they weren't for a long time. Yeah. And behavior uh, at, at the university level and stuff like yeah, yeah, dogs aren't, aren't, aren't good <laughs> test subjects. Yeah. Well, that's switched now and this is popping up all over the place and we're really trying to understand how the dog brain works and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And so this is just like personality profiles and learning style things for human beings. Right. So just in psychology, we've known you can identify some people are visual learners. Some people are auditory learners. Some people need the tactile parts of it and all that kind of thing. And so coming up with these potential uh, tests to tell Mm -hmm. you what your dog's strengths are, or uh, even strengths is not the right word. The, the way your dog approaches learning in the world. Right. Um, I think any of the stuff we talked a bit about this, the idea that, you know, tests, like what do your dog score on the test? Oh, my dog's better than yours. Like this, like this is a a tool that has a huge amount of potential to help us kind of understand a given dog and set up training programs that Mm. can maximize that dog's potential. Absolutely. And so is this dog more visual? Are they more memory based? Do they make connections quickly? Are they inferring things? Are they taking handler direction a lot? Right. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to work harder to make this dog independent or not. So there's so many of these things and people are going to say, Oh, training affects it. Yeah, of course it does. Right. For sure. Like, yep, absolutely. But that's still incredibly valuable and fascinating to watch as well. Mm -hmm. And so certainly, uh, we were all I- interested and excited by it. The students were losing their mind yeah. over the idea that like watching dogs problem solve and s- having another way. And I think for a lot good dog trainers figure this out with their dogs, of right? people that yep. have been training a long time. Yep. There's a lot of stuff here that, that dovetails with like, Oh yeah, I, I, I knew, knew that about this yeah. dog, right? Yep. I know he has an incredible memory. So yep. I have to be really careful uh-huh. that he doesn't associate this kind of hide with it. Cause yep. he's going to go check that every time. Right. Yep. Cause he remembers the last thing he found and he's going to go right there. Right. Yeah. And once I know that I'm like, okay, I got to change stuff up more frequently mm-hmm. on you or whatever, the, whatever. Yeah. There's a million different ways in which it can affect your training. And so I think it's just a way of kind of standardizing that, getting people to think about that. And also 
getting people to stop judging your dog. Like if would I judge somebody because they're a visual versus an auditory learner, Mm-mm. when I say, Oh, you're a rotten person. Like you're <laughs> like, because you need to see it to yeah. understand it versus hear it mm-hmm. to understand it or whatever the hell it is. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if anything that helps us move that along and make it better for dogs and be able to bring out better performances from individual dog, then I'm all on board. And this is fascinating and yeah. interesting. Right? Yeah. And the point you brought up there was it confirms a lot of things that we know about our dogs. Uh, if you do the cognitive testing earlier on, so like those that are selecting a new dog, so whether you're search and rescue, law enforcement, whatever, you now know this information before you begin your training. Mm-hmm. And now you're more efficient. You won't be spitting that. You won't see it 10 times and finally go, oh, this dog is strong in memory. You'll know it from the start, which makes that training way more efficient. And uh, even if you've had your dog for a little while, it'll confirm those things. And then you'll now adjust your training quicker to that dog's learning strength and, and make it better. And like we were saying yesterday, uh, you know, when you would do it, we're doing Mondial Ring, this is even a amazing for people that do that. Oh, hell yeah. Especially with the dogs that, again, strong memory can be an asset or it can be a hindrance depending on the circumstance and what your training is. So it was cool to be able to share that with you and, and knowing that we're going to take that to the next level here in the near future. Oh, I see a lot of us doing things with this. And, yeah. Uh, uh, I bet it just needs to get out in front of people like, uh, and from a dog trainer's perspective, yep. right? I think sometimes from the, the science perspective, like a we are trying our best to kind of be a bridge between those worlds, right? The practitioners and the theoreticians and kind of bring that, those worlds together. And I think as more dog trainers start to explore this and kind of understand its power, potentially Mm -hmm. its usefulness, then, um, it's going to, it's going to be a game changer for a lot of people, Mm -hmm. um, that, Maybe, and, and maybe even more so for beginning trainers yes. and intermediate trainers who are going to be maybe slow to recognize some of those things and have painted themselves a little bit into a corner sure. by the time they're making adjustments. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And I think it's the beginning of a, another little revolution, revolution yeah. in mm-hmm. that, right? like mm-hmm. identifying dogs as individuals and trying to figure out how they, they work. Yeah, uh, is is fascinating. No, it, it is super cool stuff, and it's always motivated me, as you've seen. And and I've been the, you know, with the help of the universities like Dr. Brian Hare and Dr. Emily Bray and and Evan McLean and things like that. But like like we talked about, they are in the science world. They're in the laboratories. They don't get out. So I've been trying to you know share this information, but I'm just one person, and I've mm-hmm. been going, and it's been fun for me. I've loved going and traveling, but I need more voices. Yeah. I need more people such as yourselves and, and others who will learn from this, you know, and say, if I know my dog better and I know what the learning strategies are in my dog. The relationship is so much better. The results of the training is so much better. My efficiency in training is so much better. It, it changes a lot of things. So that's super cool. You know, like I said, you know, time will tell for the listeners. There'll be lots of stuff in the future. You know, stay tuned, as they say. But um, in this, you know, the individual aspect brings me up to what I'll use as my kind of like my last question is addiction. You know, people don't look at dogs as being addicted to things in a sense. (laughs) So I'll let you expand upon addiction in dogs because we both love this is fascinating stuff. Sure. Sure. Um, I think, uh, we've, we've talked about it for a long time around working dog circles, this idea that one of the reasons why would my dog, uh, turn himself inside out, search in the desert for an hour and a half, like climb on rubble piles, Mm -hmm. you know, all these things to get a tennis ball, 
Yeah. Because your dog's an addict. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And then when a lot of behavior stuff, we're starting to talk about, I use in behavior mod and in other places, I'm using like addiction terminology to talk about <laughs> yeah. our dogs. Yeah. Right. Yep. They get addicted to the chemicals. That, that crackhead dog. <laughs> chemicals released during certain yeah. activities, uh, you know, dopamine addicts and mm-hmm. adrenaline addicts and mm-hmm. junkies, as it were, and that kind of thing. Um, and so it's a double edged sword. Right. So like any kind of addiction, we can manipulate it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so somebody that's addicted to something is willing to go to great lengths to get it. They'll endure stress and adversity to get it. And so in training of working dogs, it's, it's mm-hmm. a huge advantage. Mm-hmm. Also, it can create arousal level that can cause problems in the teaching phase, right? Our manipulating dogs to the appropriate arousal level yep. while they're learning tasks. And so if my dog is, a tennis ball addict and yep. he'll turn himself inside out and he'll chase it until he drops. Maybe that's more arousal than I want in certain circumstances. Sure. And I have to be vigilant that I don't create problems. I also have to watch out for addiction connected to activities that I don't want the dog to be engaged in. Right. I let my dog chase squirrels or, you know, aggress at mm-hmm. people in yes. the crate yep. and yep. stuff. The dogs start to create a, this is fun. I get into this as a self-reinforcing, internally reinforcing component. Mm-hmm. And now I have unwanted behavior that the dog's addicted to. So yeah. one of the things is I'm like, addiction isn't universally bad when we talk about sure. dog training. Yep. Um, but I want the dog to be addicted to certain appropriate things yes. and yeah. not to others. Yes. And the types of dogs that form these addictions, mm-hmm. uh, the ones we look for in working dog yep. circles a lot, um, are the addictive personalities yep. because we can manipulate that have the potential to get addicted to things you don't want them to as well. Mm-hmm. So management strategies when they're young and controlling, all that stuff comes into that world. Mm-hmm. But it's it's an endlessly large discussion. Sure. But but th- it also plays a role in variable reinforcement. Right? Yes. So once I've created the addict, as it were, and they're getting their reinforcement for whatever activity I'm trying to get them to do, that activity itself can start to become reinforcing. And when I switch to a variable schedule, I actually crank up the addiction, right? Mm-hmm. The dogs get more persistent. They get more aroused. They get all that stuff. And so the better we kind of understand these mechanisms, the better we'll be able to manipulate them to our advantage and not get the downside of them, get mm-hmm. the upside of it and, and avoid the pitfalls. Yep. Sort, right. Yeah. And, and what's amazing sometimes with that addiction is the addiction to do things that are dangerous in oh, a sense. Yeah. So, uh, like you said, we manipulate that and, and put the dogs will, will do things that like, like, like you said, like for you, mountain climbing, you know, there's, oh, yeah. there's that a, a rush that, yeah, yeah, to go do something and I'm dangling off a cliff yeah. in the dog thing. It's, it's having dogs, you know, get into maybe it's, if it's the bite work going into something or into an area that where, you know, a normal dog would be like, why would I ever do that? Yep. There's no way am I going to go into a dark space with potentially a boogeyman and weird things hanging down or whatever it is. Is, but I want, but then you get the dogs that are like, hell yeah, let's oh, go yeah. do it. They get really into it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. wild, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and then on the detection side, it's, it's taking those uh, dogs that are addicted to whatever that we call it, addicted to those toys and then giving it to them too much, mm-hmm. which like you just said, interferes back to that point we made earlier with their learning, with their efficiency and detection. And, and by, doling it out appropriately uh, or offering sometimes here's something else instead of this, you know, it might make the addiction increase a little bit, but then it also allows us to teach and learn, which is the, the main thing that we really both try to stress to, to students and to handlers and to understand how to communicate the best oh. and how to communicate to know that dog in front of you. Mm-hmm. So 
I, I, I guarantee that there are search dogs and detection dogs that get addicted to the act of searching. Oh, for right? sure. There's a certain type that you know, used rewards to reinforce at the beginning, but there we see it in tracking where dogs will walk over rewards yep. to continue to track. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like, yep. yeah, I taught you you'll get food or you'll get mm-hmm. a toy mm-hmm. on the track for this. Mm-hmm. And now you get a dog that just loves the searching portion. oh yeah they get absorbed in it and dogs are designed to have that leads them places mm-hmm. biologically but also um especially in the breeds that we've bred yep for hunting disciplines and searching disciplines and things like that mm-hmm. we've bred the same kind of dogs that we're breeding in protection where <laughs> yep. dogs that get addicted to those activities quickly yeah right? so we can talk about that like the self-reinforcing yes internally reinforcing aspects of certain behaviors for a, a, a subset of the dog mm-hmm. population which mm-hmm. is we would we would love to identify those dogs of course doing search work right yeah well it's the ones that you know a lot of handlers come up to me and go why does my dog you know go to an odor then leave it and keep searching mm-hmm. in in some cases that's the dog that loves searching it's mm-hmm. like hey i found it cool let's go find another one mm-hmm. you know and in some realms that's great you know for the dogs have to find multiple finds um but it's confusing for some like i need him to stay there and and hold that position and like you said the dogs reinforce like you can give them a toy they're like thanks for toy but i want to keep searching again you know and we see those a lot more i would say in some of the sporting breeds that are just designed to Mm -hmm. hunt all the time so they're like cool i found it but i want to go find more Mm -hmm. so you know that's a great analogy of it they're addicted to the searching aspect it's what they really love doing so Sometimes it's not because you had bad training. It's just because the dog is like, I love doing this. This is the most reinforcing thing for me is to go hunt, especially those that are listening. They have pointers and Mm -hmm. the other ones. I get that that question a lot in that realm. So, yeah, it's cool. Like you said, there could be a whole other podcast just on the addiction aspect and and manipulating those for our training. But I think we covered a a good little taste of it here for people to maybe get addicted to more listening to the podcast. Yeah. So, um, you know, expand a little bit about, you know, before we close it out, what you got coming up here at the Michael Ellis School for Dog Trainers yeah. and the future of all that. Yeah, lots of big changes. Yep. Right? So, um, I think I've, I've talked about this a little bit in other places, but I'm hitting the stage of my career where I want to kind of explore some new projects. Uh, and so, uh, for the last 13 years since I opened the school, we've been running uh, – a couple of our long-term programs over mm-hmm. here uh, are five. They've, they're five months now. They were like four months when we started. Sure. They're these longer programs doing a couple of them a year. And uh, we're in the middle of the last one of those. Um, and I'm creating some new formats for content. So some of which will allow people to watch lectures and demos and things uh, remotely mm-hmm. uh, ahead of time and then kind of maximize their in-person time when they come to the school. Um, creating a whole bunch of new classes, mostly mm-hmm. on things that I'm specifically interested in. Now, yep, right. Yep, so yep. the, some of the things that, uh, uh, I've taught for years and years and years, I'm going to turn into kind of more self-study yeah. on, online formats so people can access that so that I can spend my in-person time teaching some, yeah. some new topics that I'm interested in. Um, want to travel a bit more, uh, work on, I'm working on a book slowly, but surely mm-hmm. and travel, travel more, um, do some collaborative processes yep. like the things we're talking about doing together. Yeah. Maybe some yep. seminar training uh, conventions yep. with us together. Yep. And then maybe uh, like I have some ideas. I know a lot of um, trainers for a long time that are sort of at the height of their powers mm-hmm. now. And I'd love to have 
organize an annual kind of mm-hmm. conference type mm-hmm. thing where we all get together and talk and people can come and listen to discussions and yeah. see demos and work with different people. So th- some ideas about new things to do a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, so. for sure. No, and I'm super excited, you know, as, as we will tease this, there'll be some stuff between Michael and I coming out in the future mm-hmm. and there's going to be, whether it be seminars or online stuff or video, whatever, there's some, there, there'll be some things coming down the pike for everybody. I, we get both get asked this all the time. So yes, there'll be both in-person things and there'll yep. be things online. Um, He's educating me a lot, which is helpful for the online world a little bit. Yes. (laughs) So, you know, so everybody stay tuned. But thank you so much for that time to come back on here again. I'm sure we'll do more in the future as we start doing more projects. Um, And for everybody listening, thank you so much for tuning in to Canine's Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy. Okay.